If you have a copy of the scriptures, please turn with me this morning to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 13 to 23 this morning. This is God's word for us, his people, today. Listen to this. Now when they, that is the wise men, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt And remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. According to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead." And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Friends, this is God's word for us this morning. I'm going to tell you a story this morning in three scenes. Scene one, the flight to Egypt. Verse 13 tells us that the wise men depart. They have come from afar. They have followed a star. They have heard the word of God opened in Jerusalem. And they have come to Bethlehem where they have worshipped the, the Christ child who is there about two years old. They have brought him gifts and treasure, and having found him and worshipped him, now they are departing to go back home. And an angel appears to Joseph again in a dream and says to him, Joseph, wake up. Take the child, take his mother, and go to Egypt, because Herod is about to seek for and kill and try to kill the child. Joseph, as he is prone to do, obeys immediately. What an amazing thing for the Bible to say about you. Uh, Joseph immediately obeys, verse 14 tells us. He arises by night and takes Jesus and Mary to Egypt, flees as refugees to Egypt. And verse 15 tells us that they wait there in Egypt until Herod dies, and that this fulfills prophecy, Hosea 11.1. One of the things that sticks out to me 
even in this first scene, is just acknowledging again that Jesus is a fully human baby. Jesus is a baby here. Jesus has no ability to defend himself. Jesus has no ability to act or to influence. In fact, the text doesn't even call him Jesus. It calls him the child. Friends, our Savior is fully human. Here he is a baby, and he is a fully human baby. It is breathtaking to think about the fact that the God who spoke the universe into being is vulnerable here in the person of Jesus. This Jesus, this child, is going to save the world, but here he can't even save himself. Again, just helpful to note, Jesus is not a magic super baby. He he is not 11 from Stranger Things. Jesus is a fully human child. And it's why it's so instructive, you know, in the early church, they really struggled more with trying to figure out how Jesus could be human than how he could be divine. They kept trying to say, well, he's not really completely human because that's just too mind-blowing. And so many of the early heresies in the church, the things that if one was to believe would, would distort the gospel to the point one couldn't be saved, so many of those things were the church trying to wrestle with his divinity and his humanity. And they were trying to oftentimes make Jesus into some kind of superhero, like he wasn't really human. There was an interesting book that came out a few years ago uh, that I didn't read, but I think it's one of those books that uh, the title makes it so you don't have to read the book. You ever had one of those? Uh, It was called Superheroes Can't Save You. And it was about Jesus. Uh, And the point is, Jesus was fully divine and also fully human. And in this passage here, we just get a sense of what it meant that he was fully human. He was vulnerable and had to be protected at this point. It brings us to scene two, the slaughter of the innocents. Verse 16 tells us that Herod feels betrayed by the wise men. As if they owed him something. And Herod, as we talked about last week, was a paranoid and evil king, constantly fearful that someone would try to take away his kingdom. And Herod's paranoia always turned murderous. And here it turns murderous again. Herod decides he's going to try to keep his throne by eliminating potential competition. And so what Herod does is he sends soldiers to Bethlehem and the surrounding region to have all of the little boys two years old and under killed. At this time, Bethlehem and the surrounding region were three or four hundred people, which means somewhere in the neighborhood of five to ten, maybe twelve children were slaughtered by a wicked tyrant seeking to hang on to a throne that wasn't his to begin with. Verses 17 and 18 tell us that this too 
fulfills prophecy. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Friends, it's helpful for us to realize that opposition to God always leads to us harming others. Opposition to God always overflows into us harming other people because if we disregard God, it is easy to disregard those who are made in his image. Uh, I read uh, a few years ago a quote from a, a philosopher named Emmanuel Mournier uh, who, who talks about this idea of what it means for us to hurt one another. And he uses the phrase human nature. Uh, but I want you to substitute in your mind the image of God because that's really what he's getting at. Uh, and here's what he says. He says, some people think there is no such thing as human nature. For some people, this idea becomes translated as everything is possible for man. And in that, they find some hope. For others, this becomes everything is permissible to man. And with that, they abandon all restraint. And others finally take this to mean everything is permissible against man. And with that, we arrive at the death camps. Friends, if we disregard God, if we disregard those who are made in his image, we will harm them. But how do we do this? Because, I mean, these are serious things. We're reading about uh, atrocities here. You know, the quote is about the Holocaust. We're watching Herod slaughtering innocent children. Does this have anything to say to us? in our day-to-day lives. And friends, I think it does. Because there are all kinds of ways that we choose to disregard God and thus hurt those who are made in his image. So, for example, when we neglect or minimize or choose to ignore the identity that God has given us as creatures made in his image and redeemed by the blood of his son. When we neglect that identity, which is more sure than anything else in the world, when we neglect it, we begin to look elsewhere for identity. We begin to look elsewhere for acceptance. And so we look around and we look at our spouse. We look at our kids thinking that, that maybe our, our family is going to somehow give us an identity that makes us look good. We look at our friends. We look at our work. We look at our achievements. We look at our bank accounts. We look at all of these things hoping that some of these things will give us an identity and will give our lives meaning. And when we do that, we begin to look at these things for significance. We look at these things as if they will make us feel like we are enough. But here's the thing. None of those things were made to bear that weight. Your spouse and your kids were not meant to bear the weight of your identity. Your work and your achievements in your careers were not meant to bear the weight of your significance and your actual being as a person. 
And so when we do this, when we throw the need for identity and affirmation and fulfillment on our spouse or on our work or even on our bank accounts, we crush those things with the weight of our expectations. They will fail you. And when that happens, we resent those things. If I feel like my wife and children don't make me look as good as I think they should, I will resent my wife and children. If I feel like my job isn't making me look as important as I surely must be, I will resent my coworkers and the place where I work. And friends, that harms those people. That sins against those people. It's not just atrocities that happen when we neglect God. We harm other people when we neglect the truth of God and his kingdom. Last week we talked about how there is a hint of Herod in our hearts when we choose to uh, not submit to God and his kingship. Friends, the same is true here again. When we don't submit to the lordship of Christ, we hurt other people. I want to add a, a side note here uh, as well. Uh, I want to look at uh, the, the prophecy that Matthew uh, says this passage fulfills. Uh, it's quoted from Jeremiah 31, and you read, we read that earlier in the service, uh, which is really a, 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 it's in the middle of Israel being sent out of the land, being sent into exile. And it's this beautiful passage that has sort of sadness and hope mingled together. Uh, You've got the weeping at what is about to befall the people of God. They're going to be kicked out of their land and sent into a foreign place where they're going to be oppressed and persecuted. But God is also promising to uh, care for them and restore their fortunes, that, that he is not done with them yet. And so Rachel, uh, that we see there in verse 18, and we also see in Jeremiah 31, Rachel is the wife of Jacob. Uh, Jacob was later named Israel, and so in some ways, Rachel is sort of the, the, the birth of the people of God. She is sort of the mother of the people of God. And so she lived a thousand years before Jeremiah wrote his prophecy, and he's saying that Rachel weeps as her children go into exile. She is weeping as as her children, even the children that live a thousand years later, are suffering. And Matthew is saying here in Matthew 2 that Rachel weeps whenever God's people lose their children. That not only does she weep as they go into exile, she weeps when Herod, when a murderous, paranoid tyrant unjustly executes children. And friends, I think there's comfort there for us. I think there's comfort especially for those of you who have lost children, whether to miscarriage or premature illness or death. Rachel always weeps when God's people lose their children. And I think the hope comes even as we consider the fact that God himself knows what it is to lose a child. God himself has endured the agony of that pain as Jesus dies for the sins of his people. Rachel weeps for the children of God. 
Not just in exile, not just in Bethlehem, not just on the cross, but even today in our own lives and experience. The Bible is honest about that pain. It sees it and it acknowledges it. And I think there's real hope and comfort there for us. And friends, that takes us to the the third scene here in Matthew chapter 2. And that scene is the return to Israel. Verse 19 tells us that Herod dies. In fact, the Greek is more descriptive than that because it actually says Herod comes to an end, uh, which is not the normal word for death in the Greek. So Matthew is ascribing a little significance there to the death of Herod. Uh, Herod doesn't die, Herod ends, because that's about as significant as that was to God and his plans. Verse 20, the angel again appears to Joseph and says, Joseph, Herod is dead, go home, go back to Israel. And in verse 21, again, Joseph, who never speaks in the New Testament, obeys. He takes Jesus He takes Mary out of the relative safety and stability they found in Egypt and takes them back to the land of Israel. But in verse 22, uh, Joseph learns that Herod's son is reigning in Judea. And he is warned again in a dream um, that that could be dangerous for Jesus. And so instead of moving back to Bethlehem, Joseph goes instead to Galilee, the place where he was from, to a town called Nazareth. Matthew tells us this also fulfills prophecy, that he shall be called a Nazarene. Here's the thing about Nazareth. Nazareth is small and insignificant. Uh, When we were in eastern North Carolina, people used to joke that eastern North Carolina was a good place to be from. Nazareth is a good place to be from. Uh, And there's this principle, maybe, that we can distill from this idea, this very fact that Jesus is from Nazareth. And that is, we have to be cautious of the fact that we tend to doubt the authenticity of important things that have unimportant beginnings. You see this at the beginning of John's Gospel, when... uh, when the disciples are talking to one another and they say, hey, we found the Messiah and he's from Nazareth. And the response is, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Uh, and you've got to feel the weight of this. Um, I apologize if this affects anyone here. But this would be somebody saying, this product has been developed that is going to change the world. And you can only buy it in Catlet. You'd be like, Really? Really? Okay. Catlet. Uh, Nazareth. It was, it was small. It was just not a place where important things happened. Rob gave me permission to use Catlet, by the way. <laughs> we, we had a long conversation about which town is safe to do this with. Catlet was where we landed. So apologies if you were offended by that. It's, it's Rob's fault. <laughs> just pass the buck. Jesus being from Nazareth reminds us, friends, that that we don't always understand things like importance and significance the way God does. 
And we can be tempted to think that we do understand what is important, and we do understand what is significant, but Jesus being from Nazareth reminds us that God evaluates those things differently than we do, and I want to encourage you with that, particularly as you think about things like work, and as you think about things like achievement. When you start to wonder and worry about doing important things, be careful that you're not using the world's definition of importance as opposed to what God is actually doing in your life. Because when we do this, we devalue the very, very important work of being an ordinary, faithful Christian, which is significant and important work. God has given us three things to do, and we know those three things with infallible certainty because they are evident in the Scriptures. He has told us to love Him, to love others, and to love the place that He has given us. Friends, if you are doing those three things, you are doing important and significant work. You do not have to change the world. You are called to love God, to love the small number of people that he has put in front of you, and to strive to pursue the common good of the place where you live. That is important kingdom work. We have three scenes. They're all pretty short. They're all fairly straightforward. So here's a question that strikes me as I read this passage. We often talk, especially during the Advent and Christmas season when we're looking at these passages, we talk about how Jesus was the baby who was born to die. That ultimately Jesus was born to go to the cross. And so the question is, why does Jesus flee here only to return back to Israel and die unjustly under Herod's son? Why flee the first Herod just to die under Herod's son 30 years later? Why not just stay put? Why not let Jesus die now for his people? It would have been simpler, perhaps. It's actually an important question, friends. And it's actually central to what Matthew's gospel is showing us, particularly in these early chapters. And the hint we get of the answer is in the fact that each one of these scenes is being portrayed as fulfilling prophecy. Fulfilling prophecy. And so to answer the question, we're going to think super briefly about how prophecy works in the Bible. And one of the most unfortunate misconceptions about prophecy in the Bible is that it is purely about predicting the future. One day a man will come to you in a blue blazer, listen to him. Then when that guy shows up, you listen to him. Um, There is some of that in the Bible. But friends, by and large, that is not what prophecy in the Bible is about. In fact, none of these passages here are predictions of anything. If you go back and look at them, uh, in verse 15, that's a quotation from Hosea 11, which is just describing the life of Israel, that Israel went into Egypt, and then out of Egypt, God delivered them. It's not a a prediction of anything. It's a description of something God has already done. The same thing with that quotation from Jeremiah 31. It's not a prediction of anything. It it is a a description of, of the grief that God feels himself over sending his people into exile. And so what's amazing here 
is that Matthew is self-consciously showing us that Jesus is reliving the events of ancient Israel. He is reliving the exodus. He is reliving in some ways the exile where God's people are sent out of the land and have to come back into it. He is showing us that Jesus is the true and better Israel. Jesus is meant to be everything Israel was supposed to be. Jesus is fulfilling everything that Israel was supposed to be. If you look at that last passage, the last prediction, uh, he went and lived in Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. That's nowhere we can actually find in the Old Testament. There is no specific prophecy that says he shall be called a Nazarene, which is why it's helpful there to note that it says what was spoken by the prophets, which means that Matthew is, is probably here referring to this generic hope that salvation will come from unexpected places. Jesus is the true and better Israel. He is the true and better Savior. He is the true and better humanity. But something else amazing happens in this passage that it's really easy to miss because of the fact that a week has elapsed from last week. And that is, after the Magi, after the wise men go and worship Jesus, The New Testament never again refers to Herod as the king. He's just Herod after that point. When the wise men came and brought these royal gifts to Jesus, Righteousness in his life is what made the cross an acceptable sacrifice, is what made it cover and atone for our sins. In the late 1930s, uh, a professor from Westminster Seminary, one of the founders of Westminster Seminary, uh, a man named J. Gresham Machen, he was a New Testament scholar, also a, a theologian. Machen was lying on his deathbed. He was a young man, but had always had health problems. He was 55 uh, when he died in 1938. He was lying on his deathbed, and he sent a telegram 
to one of his best friends, another theologian named John Murray. And Machen's last words to his best friend were these. So thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. Friends, Jesus not only died for you, he lived for you. Every second, every heartbeat, every breath, he followed the will of his Father because he loved his people, because he wanted to rescue them. It is good news. He lived for you. He died for you. And he lives again for eternity. Would you pray with me? Father, we are overwhelmed by the reality of who Jesus is and what he has done. Father, we thank you that we have a high priest who is not unable to sympathize with us, but has been made like us in every way. He knows what it is to suffer. He knows what it is to be vulnerable. He knows what it is to hurt. He even knows what it is to lose those that we love. Father, there is great hope there. But not only is Jesus like us, he is fully God. He is able to deliver us because of his obedience, his lifelong obedience and his obedience unto death on the cross. Father, let us delight and cling to the reality of Christ's work on our behalf. Father, even now as we come to the table, we pray that you would be at work in us, that you would take this ordinary bread and this ordinary cup and use them for an extraordinary purpose to anchor us in Christ's work on our behalf, to strengthen us and guide us and sustain us. We pray all these things for your glory and our good in Christ's name. Amen.